millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You can now support Ghost Maps on Patreon. Simply look for We Are Huntu or click the link in the description. Ghost Maps is hosted on Libsyn. Get up to two months of free podcast hosting for your show from Libsyn with the promo code HANTU. Check out the description for more details. Ghost Maps. Entry 60. Actually, Keith, I think I can take it from here. Ghost Maps. Entry 69. Polytechnic. Singapore. It's nice to be back. I took this short break initially for my own safety, but also to consult with Keith and another organization. But it turned out to be exactly what I needed. No recovering from accidents, just some time to rest. So, I've got a bit of a spring in my step, one that I haven't had in a while, when I meet Idris. Idris is a regional CFO at a multinational company. When he arrives at this coffee shop in Lavanda at 7pm, I ask him whether I'm taking him away from work. He looks confused for a second, but then laughs. Oh no no, I never work past six, if I don't have to, he says. He tells me that he insists that his staff do the same. I tell him that not many people at his level and in his industry would take that approach. He replies bluntly, then they're terrible leaders. He prides himself on knowing what gets the best out of his people. Even when he was in school, he found himself leader of all sorts of groups and clubs, which is what we're here to talk about today. Idris orders himself a copy, then leans back casually. Ready? He asks. His tone, an odd mix of warmth and efficiency. I nod, then pull out my recorder and ask him to start from the beginning. It was 2011. Idris was a senior of his co-curricular activity back in Polytechnic. For obvious reasons, he doesn't want to reveal which poly he was in. That came with lots of responsibilities, one of which was organizing a camp for his juniors. He'd rather focus instead on how he had been lucky enough to have a team of capable fellow seniors. I mean, yeah, it's easy to see it as just a camp now, he says. But back then, 
this was one of the most important things going on in my school life. The camp involved the juniors and a handful of seniors staying the night in one of the school's blocks. That, in and of itself, would have been quite the task. But there was a tradition for these camps that Idris needed to continue. We had to scare the crap out of the juniors, he says with a grin. They accomplished this through a horror-themed night walk. Idris says that the plan itself was relatively straightforward. In batches of five, the juniors needed to complete three tasks on three different levels of one of the school's other blocks. But starting at 12.30am, of course. The first task was on level 5, where, in the female toilet, a senior named Anna was waiting. Anna had a wig of long black hair and a white dress stained with fake blood. The juniors had to pick up a fake severed hand that sat on the floor right in front of Anna. In the cubicle next to Anna, though, was another senior named Derek, so that Anna didn't have to sit in the toilet on her own. On level 6, in the middle of one of the classrooms, sat a third senior named Isabel. She was wearing ghostly white makeup, sported a bright red chongsam, and carried an old oil paper umbrella. Only one light would be switched on in the room when the juniors entered, shining down on Isabel. Again, on the floor in front of her, set an item the juniors were supposed to retrieve. This one was designed to look like a talisman. Outside the classroom was Elvin, the fourth of Idris's team, placed there to keep a watch out on Isabel. And on the last floor, however, was Idris. He wasn't dressed as anything, but would guide the juniors around the outside area of this floor. Even though no other surprises awaited the students, this stretch remained unlit. By that point, their imagination would do the work for us, he says, with a chuckle. With Idris taking the lead, almost everything for this night walk seemed to be all set. The costumes which Derek had found all looked great. Isabel found the best spots within the block to create the perfect atmosphere, right down to which rooms had the eeriest lighting. I casually ask Idris if his team had made any offerings the day before their night walk. Ah, he says, his expression darkening slightly. That was the one thing that didn't go according to plan. He adds that that's where 
everything started to fall apart. The offerings were a couple of cigarettes, lit and placed around the building as a sign of respect to any spirits that might have dwelt within the building. Typically, seniors would have this makeshift ceremony the day before the night walk. Alan, the strongest spiritually on Idris's team, had fallen sick two days prior and had yet to recover. He was supposed to lead the ceremony. I knew I should have cancelled the night walk, Idris says. Maybe even the whole camp. But I wanted to prove what a big shot leader I was. So, instead, Idris made the offerings on the evening of the night walk itself. He admits that he was copying what he had seen his seniors do the year before, hoping that everyone would buy into his act. And they did. Everyone's spirits were high as the sun went down. Idris's team were excited, and there was a vibrant, though understandably nervous energy making its way through the juniors. The infectious vibe even lifted the veil of concern that had fallen upon Idris. At 11pm, he did one last check with his team, his head fully in the game. He told everyone that they needed to stay in constant communication. If anything went wrong, if anything even seemed to be going wrong, they needed to give him a call. He made sure Anna and Derek were okay. Then he went a floor up and gave Elvin specific instructions. After each batch had gone through, he needed to pop his head into the classroom and flip the light switch. If the lights didn't come on, he needed to call out to Isabel. And if she didn't respond, Alvin needed to call Idris immediately. Right on time, the night walk started. The first couple of batches went off without a hitch. The seniors had tons of fun scaring the living daylights out of the juniors. The juniors were screaming and giggling and having the time of their lives. Before they knew it, 12.30 became 1.30. And 1.30 became 2 a.m. At this point, Idris received two calls at the same time from Derek and Elvin. He picked up Derek's first. Idris says, Derek was panicking, not wildly, but I could hear him breathing heavier and he was speaking faster. He said that a hand had reached out for Anna. A hand that came through the toilet wall. Derek thankfully intervened before the hand could touch Anna, yelling loudly. The hand seemed to vanish. 
just as Derek burst out of the cubicle and quickly escorted Anna out of the toilet. This call with Derek barely lasted 10 seconds, Idris says, right after which I called Elvin back. Elvin had felt like something was wrong. Just a gut feeling, nothing more. He opened the door to the classroom and tried to switch on the light. Darkness. Elvin yelled out for Isabel. Silence. And that's when he had tried to call Idris the first time. When Idris called him back, Elvin said he'd just been waiting there. So Idris took the stairs down the floor to investigate. Idris tried the light switch and it worked. Sure enough, there in the middle of the room was Isabel, looking surprised to see Idris, but none the worse for wear. Idris asked if she had heard Elvin call out to her, and she said that she didn't hear anyone. The concern that had been lifted off Idris came crashing right back down on him. Fear gripped him. Less for himself and more for his team and their charges. He stopped all activities and told everyone to head back down and lead the remaining juniors back to the block where they had set up camp. He quickly ran back up to the seventh floor though to grab some of his remaining equipment. But as he reached the seventh, Idris was met with a sudden blood-curdling scream. A shriek of someone in pain and in anger. It was so loud and so visceral that Idris says it felt like it pierced his very soul and it drove him down to his knees. Idris started crying, immobilized for nearly half a minute by this overwhelming sense of dread that filled him. Eventually, though, Idris regained his composure and sprinted back down. When he reached the ground floor, though, Idris got another call, this time from a senior stationed at the block where the juniors had set up camp. A blackout had hit, but just on the floor that the students were on. Idris told the senior to get everyone onto another floor. As he's giving this other senior instructions, though, he heard it again. The scream. Unlike the first time, Idris managed to maintain some sense of composure. He didn't drop to his knees, but tears were still running down his face. Idris rushed back to the block where camp had been set up. He checked on everyone, and aside from Elvin, Isabel, Derek, and Anna, all the students seemed fine. 
mostly confused about why the night walk had stopped so abruptly and excited about the blackout. But no one suspected anything more. Once he was sure everyone was okay, Idris felt pulled to a window, one that faced the block where the night walk had taken place. Idris's voice grows quieter now. We were quite some distance away, he says. But I know what I saw. A figure stood at the top of the block. It leapt into the night sky. A scream caught into Idris's throat. But he swallowed it back down. When instead of falling, the figure vanished. The night's excitement eventually died down. And the rest of the students slept soundly. Not Idris and his team, though. He told them what he had seen, and they all agreed to stay up with him for the rest of the night. The next morning, everyone packed up. The camp ended earlier than planned. Idris finishes his copy and gives me a humorless smile. I tell him that he seemed to have handled the situation really well. He shrugs, clearly still uncertain as to whether that's true, even after all these years. He says that he's still haunted, less by that scream but by his arrogance, by the possibility that he might have put his friends and charges in danger. Either way, he says, his expression lighting up as he shifts the conversation. And that's when it hit me on how important it is to take care of my people. I tell him that while it's good that he took a lesson out of his experience. He shouldn't let the shadows of his past cloud his present. He nods, the hint of that shadow still hanging over him. But maybe, just maybe, not as precariously as before. If you want to discover more of Southeast Asia's other side, Subscribe now and follow us on social media. You can also be one of our supporters on Patreon. Look for We Are Huntu or click the links in the description. Ghost Maps is a Huntu production. Created by Kyle Ong and Wayne Ray. With art direction by Jolene Lim and recorded on Audio-Technica mics. Acast anbefaler. 
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.